want to go to there. Snipe! Saw the window and I just couldn't resist it. Francie doesn't like coffee ice cream. Hi, for those of you who just tuned in, everyone here is a crazy person. Are we having fun yet? <laughs> yes, it's... 30 Helens agree. Never mind. Maybe the dingo ate your baby. It's a cunning plan, actually. Would you believe it? And you beautiful tropical fish. Don't mention the war. Clear eyes, put hearts, get Hello and welcome to the Televerse, Sound On Sites TV podcast. This is Kate Kalzik and I'm joined as ever by Simon Howell. Simon, how's it going? Um, It's going all right. Uh, What do you want to talk about? Well, what we should mention first up at the top uh, is that this week we are joined at the DVD shelf by one Mr. Ricky D, the co-creator and uh, founder of Sound On Sight, uh, as well as your co-host for so many years over at the Sound On Sight podcast. Uh, He's come back. Correct. Uh, to help us talk about the Wonder Years, which was such a fabulous show to sort of, for me, discover. It's like I obviously I'd heard of it and knew about it, but I had never actually watched any. So that was wonderful. And that's coming at the end of the podcast. You know, what we didn't mention in that segment, Simon, that the creators left after season one. I feel like that's what? Oh, you didn't know that? Yes, the creators left after season no. one to go like because because uh, there are a couple and they were to raise their kids like outside of L.A. and the Hollywood thing. So, yeah. Wow. I did know that. See, you didn't forget about that. I, you know, because you didn't know, but I forgot about it and just was, you know, a bad podcaster. So, anyways. Uh, I would not have guessed. But we, we have all. plenty of other interesting and fun uh, discussions there about the Wonder Years coming at the end of the podcast. Uh, but, of course, the reason we had Ricky on specifically for this episode is... Next week is our four-year anniversary for the Televerse. We're going to be doing our fourth annual Make You Watch-a-thon. We've already discussed this. I will be making you watch. Uh, you already have made me watch, in fact, uh, Steven Universe. And you are making me watch Venture Brothers. Oh, no. Not that. Not Venture Brothers. Oh, no. How awful. Because <laughs> I've, I've loved what I've seen, but just I haven't gone back and caught up. So that's what I will be doing over the course of this week. But uh, the reason... We are having Ricky on this week. It's because, Simon, what is the announcement? <sighs> All right. Uh, well, I am uh, I am stepping down as co-host of the Televerse. And actually, I'm stepping down from a lot of things. Uh, I, I, am, uh, I am retiring from podcasting, uh, as it were, uh, at least for the foreseeable future. Um, it's uh, there's a lot of reasons. I'm not going to get into it right now. We'll be here all day, but uh, it's uh, it's not not a decision made lightly, and not something uh, not something that was not done without considerable forethought. Uh, and uh, yeah, I don't really know. Uh, yeah, that's that's about it. And, I, and I'm going to be uh, also as as a result because I'm not going to have stuff to promote uh, soon. I'm also going to be uh, getting off of the Twitter and things like that. And just generally living a little bit less publicly. Uh, that part I'm I am pretty stoked about. Well, um, but yeah, yeah, and of course there, like you said, there are many reasons that went into this decision that are of course your own. But a not insignificant part of it is that you are entering the job force, the workforce on a like more career area as opposed to the the fun world of movie land. Well, well that's the idea anyway. You know, so podcasting takes a lot of time. Especially a podcast like the Televerse. 
that is definitely one reason. Uh, I I mean, the whole career thing is sort of more theoretical than real right now. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's that's that is the way life is is going. Uh, anyway, it's going to so, be an exciting new chapter for you. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's going to be an exciting new chapter for a lot of things, including yeah. things I can't talk about yet. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be um, uh, the next month or so is going to be quite quite interesting yes so there will be uh, a number of friends of the podcast stepping up to come on and be guest co-hosts for the for the next uh you know foreseeable you know number of weeks and then we'll go from there but the televerse will still carry on though of course in a very different form we we'll, you'll be very much missed simon and we'll talk more about that we'll do all that emotional stuff next week but we wanted to to let you guys know so that you have a chance to write in or uh, get any last thoughts to to Simon before he heads off into the sunset of of the televerse and of, of podcasting. Um, so that is the big announcement. With that out of the way, what do you say we dive in with a pretty entertaining week of TV? Yeah, let's do that. That sounds like a good plan. <laughs> we'll be right back after this. This week in comedy, Simon's going to talk a little bit about Rick and Morty, Total Rickall, uh, as well as Difficult People, Pledge Week, and then I'll be chiming in as well with Playing House, Cashmere Burka, uh, this week's episode of Last Week Tonight, Married, Pimps, and Review, Falsely falsely Accused, Sleep With Your Teacher, Little Person. Um, yeah, so as you note, again, I'm not going to talk for 10 minutes about So You Think You Dance this week. I'm trying to restrain myself. So first up... <laughs> is Rick and Morty, and I haven't had a chance to catch this one yet, uh, Simon. How how does this one hold up to what has been a fabulous season so far? Uh, this was also right up there. Uh, it's another, having not seen it yet, I'm not going to spoil the basic concept for you, but it's even more sort of high concept than the other episodes have been. It's uh, sort of a, a cross between a bottle episode and a clip show and a few sci-fi concepts you'll be quite familiar with. Uh, it goes. It's it's a little bit darker than the other two episodes. It goes down some very uh, into some dark areas, some of which were not uh, totally explained, and I'm uh, still a little bit confused about. And we'll see if I'll see if those carry on into future episodes. But definitely still uh, extremely funny and irreverent, and um, is willing to go into some uh, s- some some character down some character alleys that I don't think other shows would even think to do. Um, and that's all I'll say for now because you haven't watched it yet, and I would prefer you stay unspoiled. But it was it just as good, if not slightly better, than the first couple episodes. Um, definitely, it's on a roll. Well, I'll have to make sure I, I make some time for it then uh, soon here. What about uh, Difficult People Pledge Week? I also need to catch up with this one. Uh, also, I think making an uh, making strides. Uh, I like this episode considerably better than the first two. Um. It uh, spent a little bit more time with the James Urbaniak character, and we get to know a little bit more about his his work life and what he's up to, uh, and that was a that was a nice addition, um, and just more consistently funny and um, and charming than the first couple episodes were. It, it it really feels like it's it's finding its voice pretty quickly, um, and again, I, I won't I don't want to say too much more than that for now, uh, but 
definitely uh definitely headed on in the right course like pretty early on great glad to hear that um well let's move on then to playing house cashmere burka which brings back jane kasmerick uh to be delightful as um jessica st Clair's mom uh what did you think of this episode uh i thought this one was was uh was fine uh always nice to have kasmerick back uh, i don't think i was laughing as consistently as the first two episodes though um maybe it's because the the theater jokes are are a little bit a little bit easier. I liked, uh, I enjoyed the theater jokes, so I do agree they're not the most creative uh, theater jokes you've ever heard. I liked the increasing scarves, you know, unremarked upon throughout the episode for Kismeric. I thought that was pretty fun. I liked the, con- <laughs> the, the state of, of Mark, of Mark's marriage where he's just, he's trying different necklines of t-shirts as if that's going to help his marriage. Uh, is is a nicely like sort of sad counterpoint that is also comedic to what's going. On. It's like it's f- funny to see him in these different necklines in each scene, but that also points to if you actually start going down that rabbit hole, it points to you know a more sad kind of maybe uh, realistic kind of edge to the show, which I think is interesting. Mm-hmm. And I also like you know Kyle Bornheimer Bornheimer as the as the rabbi. I think that adds an interesting element. Uh, yeah, he's all right. Uh, I'll I'll be curious to see if that actually pans out in any interesting way. But uh, definitely, I would say not their most memorable episode, but it was still fun. Yes. Well, what about last week tonight? Uh, again, we talked about last week. This week, they did a segment on uh, uh, evangelical churches that uh, push their viewers and their, their um, I guess, their faithful to donate money. Uh, this is the kind of, you know, long-term reporting that i really like from last week tonight when they you know reveal they've been in contact with this particular church for like what was it 30 weeks Seven or months. something yeah it's it's a fun segment um on the other hand it, it like it's fun to hear that they've been in touch with them for so long uh and it's unfortunate that people do get exploited by these churches uh it didn't seem to be one of the more useful segments to me though because the odds of like the people watching last week tonight are really not going to be the people getting ensnared by these churches. And it's not as though the, like the, 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 the viewing audience of last week tonight will, uh, you know, are, are, are already going to be pretty, you know, they're to, you know, to make it, to make the parallel obvious, you know, they're preaching to the converted quite literally here. Um, so you know, I I think it's 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 a fun and funny segment. Um, I don't really know uh, how what utility it has really. Yeah, but are the people who were watching last week tonight going to be the people who are going to fall prey to check advance places? And I still really love that they did that segment. Uh, I I didn't see that one. Um, but I mean, like they're they've done other segments that like I mean, obviously I'm not even American, so most of this isn't relevant to me at all. But, you know, they've done other segments where they've had suggestions for things the audience can do or have talked about a topic that people don't really know anything about. And I think people have known that televangelists are bullshit and have known that for like 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, did, it didn't feel like their most novel subject matter. It definitely doesn't uh, seem like this will prompt, you know, institutional change or legal change in the definitions of these different groups. But uh, but I guess I still had still had fun with it. Oh, it's definitely fun. Definitely fun. Nice to see Rachel Dratch pop up, too. She's not on my TV enough. That's also true. 
Yeah. Well, let's move on to our next show then, and that's Married Pimps. And we have uh, Kimiko Glenn showing up here. Uh, of course, we know her as Soso on Orange is the New Black. I, I it took I couldn't quite place her. So when you said, oh, of course, from Orange is New, Orange is the New Black, I, thank you for that because it was it was bugging me. Uh, so fun to see a bit more of a glimpse into uh, what the the working life is like for these characters. Yeah, and I like that other like. Uh, uh, the that his boss just makes the assumption that uh that he and uh and and Kimiko Glenn are, are banging even like because it's it's a natural assumption to make based on how TV shows usually work uh and also based on how that character would interpret social cues uh, and I liked him le- going to that assumption and then them totally not having that relationship or even seeming like it's going to lean that way at any point uh, it would be great if she could become a little bit more of a regular presence. I don't know how likely that is, but I, I just really think that her and, uh, and Nat Faxon are really great together. And it's not a, and it's not really a sort of relationship you see a lot of on TV, sort of platonic, platonic, uh, like boss assistant relationships. Yeah. Uh, platonic work buddies. They don't come up that much. Yeah. Especially with the age difference and, you know, the gender difference. Like that's, it's pretty rare. Uh, yeah. So that was cool. Um, beyond that, like I think it was, it was it was another solid like like B plus level married. Yeah, I, I also really liked the the subplot with Judy Greer and uh, pimping out her kid uh, to to try to get the condo uh, and the the difficulties that come in with scheduling and trying to afford family vacations are that's a, family vacations are just such a popular topic for sitcoms. It's very rare for them to actually involve money as a concern. So yes. the Bradys go to Hawaii. I don't know how they go to Hawaii on a single parent income, but they do. <laughs> or Modern Family. Everyone's really rich, so it's not a concern. So I, I like the show, you know, having that little element in there as well. Um, and and I again, it feels very very married. Like the relationship that these characters have with their kids, and uh, you know. They're good parents and everything, but, you know, maybe pimping out your kid isn't the best, but we also yeah. can relate with her when she does it. Yeah. I, I also, I really like the stuff with AJ and, uh, and his potential, uh, love interest who I know I've seen in a million things and I can't think of specifically who she is. Um, but, uh, I, I like that it, t- it actually took those scenes with a level of seriousness and again, it's. It's not. It's not every day you get to see Brett Gelman dial it down at all, um, and he's good at it. And it's again, we should never be surprised at these things, but it's always worth noting. Definitely. Um, let's move on to our last show of the week. We talked about dialing it down. Uh, they, that's not how they're rolling this season on review. <laughs> Falsely accused. Sleep with your teacher, little person. They are firing on all cylinders this season, like you said last week. They, it's just a fantastic episode. For, as soon as the assistant has Forrest pour gas into the car and then takes the, the container back with her arms, um, yeah, I knew we were in for a fun segment there. Which of these three stood out the most to you? I mean, they're all good. It's ra- it's rare that even even a show as good as Review, it's rare that if in a three segment episode, all three segments will be will be strong. But I think they all are. Um, and uh, I, I don't know. I I I I'd been teasing for weeks that the next couple episodes were going to be really strong. So I'm glad you agreed with me on this one. God, where do I even start? I just certain certain visuals just killed me. Like 
uh, probably at least one in every segment. Like in the in the first segment, that shot of of Forrest just like freaking out in his office, and then the, then he closes the door, and then you see his assistant and his assistant's girlfriend's just like cackling with glee <laughs> uh, at how good their their scheme is going. Um, that w- that just killed me. Uh, and later on, the that those those establishing shots of uh, of Forrest in his new giant office. Uh, when he's in his first and like the 1.0 attempt of being a little person. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. That visual just never stopped killing me. It's fantastic. So funny. I, we're getting to see these different relationships this season for Forrest with his father and then with these different love interests they've brought in. So watching him, it's only episode, what is this, four? And he's destroyed his relationship with his father likely irreparably um i really like you know of course they bring on lennon parham to be his new love interest uh which goes surprisingly well does she she knows that he filmed them having sex and put it on tv and is cool with that apparently <laughs> so good on forest i guess for finding the most understanding person ever uh or she doesn't know yeah uh, also equally equally plausible um yeah the playing house crossover continues and i don't think anyone will complain uh, yeah, and also, like, let's not forget to give credit to AJ and her her askew remarks between between segments, which continue to be utterly perfect. Well, that was uh, I, my question for you with this episode. Do you think this season is going to just follow a trend to the point where, like, AJ just, you know, has him committed or something? I don't know. Um, I for- and also, I forget whether they tease the uh, the veto box again in this episode. Maybe they don't. But that is another one of my absolute favorite new running gags um which i i think it's next week they do a little bit uh, that that makes another appearance but anyway i i had to mention that again because it's so great uh i don't know if they're gonna do anything with aj really this season i just loved uh especially her comment about sometimes you know the the best relationships just start out in the most like uh, the, in the most like hazardous awful ways yeah <laughs> and and you can just imagine her life yeah <laughs> Well, and and it's just it, you, you just leave it there her disdain for forest is just growing with every week and that's what i because she's been a, re, a reliable character throughout um uh, but the the reactions and like the little interplay with them has gotten increasingly specific and uh the reaction has been you know fantastic performance yeah. Excellent direction and editing as well there. Uh, it just, it's built for me each each week. So I look forward to, you know, I feel like that has to go to something at some point um, this season. But if not, it's just very funny. Yeah. And she's also like weird as hell in her own right. Like that comment about, they like to be called little people. They're not just one person. <laughs> um, so she, I like that she gets to have her own sort of eccentricities that never really get explored. They're just kind of there. Uh, so yeah, another very, very, very funny episode, and uh, and and obviously the image of of Forrest unable to save his father's house. Yeah, though he's totally able to save his father's house. <laughs> <laughs> That's just sort of review in a nutshell. That's like a great single image to sum up the whole show. Yeah. Well, well when's your week in comedy? Uh, it's going to review. Yeah, me too. Hilarious. Like I'm just thinking of him holding, answering his giant phone, and just. <laughs> losing it over here so review definitely wins this week in comedy um now we'll take a break and we'll come back with our week in genre and drama someone told me it's all happening at the zoo i do believe it i do believe it's true mm-hmm. 
in genre and drama Simon's going to talk about the Sneaky Pete pilot that uh, was released by Amazon and then we'll both talk about Show Me a Hero parts one and two Masters of Sex Two Cents Mr. Robot White Rose Hannibal and The Beast from the Sea and then two finales this week The Humans finale episode eight and The Rectify finale The Source Um, now starting up this next week on AMC is Fear the Walking Dead but unfortunately we do not have screeners for that Um, we'll be talking about that next week on the podcast but first up is the Sneaky Pete pilot on Amazon now I did not watch this as I understand this was a pilot for CBS that was uh, turned down or rejected uh, that they were then able to repurpose over at Amazon now this is interesting for a number of reasons including the cast but what's the most interesting for a lot of people and I'm guessing for you as well is the creative forces behind it who's involved in Sneaky Pete Uh, so this was uh, created by David Shore who people will know from House and other things right he only didn't only do House He's done a bunch, yeah. He's done a bunch. Anyway, mostly from House. uh, And a story credit also went to Brian Cranston, who um, it seems like he's in this first episode. He makes an appearance, and I assume he will be recurring. He is uh, a a pretty clear... He's he's the big bad, essentially, of the show. Um, So I I expect he he would make appearances in several future episodes, but it doesn't seem like he's going to be a regular forever after this. That just doesn't seem plausible. Uh, but it, uh, anyway, it stars Giovanni Ribisi as, uh, as a, an ex-con, um, who gets released from jail and he steals his, uh, his cellmate's identity on his way out so that he can dodge, uh, some, some bad people, including Cranston, uh, on the, when he gets outside. And, uh, yeah. Anyway, co-stars Margot Martindale, uh, character, no, (laughs) character actress, actress Margot Martindale, (laughs) and, uh, and Marin Ireland, who we'll remember from The Slap, uh, and some other people as well, and, uh, it's okay. It's for all the, for all the star wattage involved, and the, and the, and the promise of the concept, and the creatives behind it, it, it feels solidly average. Um, it feels basically like Lone Star Jr., uh, and there is, th- there are some specific aspects of the premise that you're expected just to go with. And uh, I had trouble doing that. Um, I mean, like this, this guy, the, the Rabisi character, uh, you know, poses as this other, as this other guy and then just integrates himself with his family. They haven't seen him in 20 years, but it still seems weird because he really doesn't look anything like the other guy. Uh, but you're just supposed to go with it. It's you can kind of intimate that Margot Martindale's in on it, and no one else is, but you know, it just because she can't really play stupid. I mean, she probably could, but she's it's not what she gets cast for. Um, so yeah, it's 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 a perfectly solid, breezy, uh, hour long that if you enjoy con stories, I'd like you know, the if if you went to if you study the school of David Mamet, it's a very um, uh, it's like a 101 version of that, um. It doesn't feel like like it's something that's going to be like must see TV for anyone, but it's it's decent enough. Would you do you expect it'll get picked up? 
I don't know. It, it may already have, and I just missed it, you know, in the blur of TCAs. I would assume it already has been. Uh, it's very difficult to predict what's going to what's gonna be popular on Amazon. Like, apparently the most popular thing they've ever released is Bosch. That makes sense to me. I mean, who, who knew? Uh, so, yeah. So, I, we'll, we'll see. I would assume it'll find a, a following. It seems very solidly networky, though. So, I'm surprised it didn't... It didn't uh, it didn't shake out on a network. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Um, let's move on to our next show, though. The first one we've both seen, and that's the miniseries Show Me a Hero. The first two parts air this week. They'll be airing two more for the next two weeks. It's gotten rave reviews from critics who've seen all of it. We've seen the first two now. Um, and what did you think? Did it live up to the hype? Um, I don't know yet. The jury's still out. Um, I I think it's okay. I think the first two hours are okay. Um the the thing is, this comes to us from David Simon, but it's directed by Paul Haggis, um, and I think my issues are more with the direction than necessarily with the writing. I mean, it's, for anyone who doesn't know, this is essentially, it's a six-hour miniseries um, organized around this, uh, this, dis- this dispute in Yonkers, New York, in the, uh, in the late 80s surrounding a, a proposed uh, public housing, uh, public housing developments that have been court ordered and the city is, and the citizens aren't into it. And so there's this long skirmish between the government and the courts and the, and the citizenry, uh, which sounds fascinating. Um, I did find these first two hours to be very repetitive though. And I, and I know that some of that is some, if not all that is by design, but I didn't know how much of it felt purposeful. And uh, I also didn't feel as though the, 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 the many, the parts of it involving, um, sort of the pe- the people who live in Yonkers or are attached to Yonkers versus uh, Oscar Isaac's uh, character. I won't say more than that, I guess, for now. I didn't find them to be terribly well integrated. Um, we'll see if that changes over time. I know that other characters are going to be popping up as well. Um, but yeah, I didn't really get the sort of tonal discipline from David Simon's stuff that I usually do. Uh, and also, there was way too... Like, for the first... For, for only being two hours long so far... Um, you get like an end of the wire musical montage every 35 minutes or so. And it's a bit much. Uh, see, I like this one more than you did. It might just be that I miss having David Simon on my TV, um, his writing style and his interest in, in, and some of this is also the direction of course, but a, a shot like the kid going back for his toy and then leaving it. It was incredibly affecting to me, and that's the kind of touch that you see in in uh, these, these kind of like wordless scenes and that you, that you get in his work, um, and in plenty of other work. You know, like Rectify has stuff like that all over the place. But I, I thought I really connected with a lot of these characters. Some of it is very much the first two of six, so I'm still waiting for a few of these characters that we're seeing to kind of tie in together in a way. I'm sure that they will um, eventually, uh, but. I'm very invested in what I've seen. I think the performances are strong and uh, it might just be that you know, I, I'm not, I don't have a big familiarity with Paul Haggis's uh, work as a director. Uh, I've seen some of his films, but not that many of them. And uh, so that it may just be that I'm less familiar with, you know, if he has go-tos uh, particular shots that he likes and things that I'm less familiar with it. So I, it's not something that I'm necessarily seeing as, as um, specifically. Uh, and also I know that I am more positive on the soundtrack than, than you are. So that might be part of it as well. 
there's a lot of Springsteen. I don't, I, I don't hate Springsteen. I'm very non-committal towards Springsteen. Uh, I don't care about Springsteen, and there's a lot of it. There's just it's wall-to-wall Springsteen, um, which okay. Um, and also it's pointed out elsewhere, but it, and it's a small thing, but it is an irritant. I have no idea what's up with Catherine Keener in like old lady drag. Yeah. I'm assuming that's going to either that's because she's based on an actual person and they wanted her to look like the actual person or that the fact that she is, I guess there's, she's supposed to be older than, you know, substantially older than Catherine Keener. Um, that must come into play in a, big way otherwise i don't know why you'd go to all that hassle just you know let her just play older that's fine yeah or just be katherine keener and just yeah whatever anyway i just thought that was weird it it distracted me in almost all of her scenes uh i'm looking for it looks like that character is starting an arc that i'm looking forward to uh i like what we get with her here i guess yeah for me um I, I am very positive towards it. Uh, I'm not stamping it a masterpiece yet, like some people are, but I haven't seen two-thirds of it. Yes, so. exactly. I look forward to get, I wasn't sure if I would watch all of it. I, well, actually, I was because it's David Simon, so I was going to watch yeah. it all no matter what. But I wasn't uh, sure it would be as high a priority for me as it is. It, some people, some of our friends of the show and other critics have been making it seem like it should be. Uh, but I think that based on these two, I will be very excited to watch what comes next. Yeah. It's also worth noting that that HBO announced this week that it's going forward with another David Simon series, not miniseries, but series that starts shooting in October, um, which is about 1970s New York and the porn industry. So that's interesting. And he's apparently doing another another series like the following year. So HBO is doubling down on being in the David Simon business, which is great. Which is definitely fantastic. Well, let's move on to our next show, Masters of Sex, Two Cents. We don't get any uh, any anything about the porn industry, but we certainly get a lot of discussion of of women on screen and you know personas versus uh, reality. Uh, what, what did you think of this episode? Uh, I thought this one was all over the place, and maybe that's because I don't really care about what they're doing with uh, with Libby this season. Like, of all their attempts to give Libby stuff to do, I think this le- this season's been the least compelling. Which is too bad, because it seemed, at first, like it was heading somewhere really interesting uh, with the dynamic with her and Ginny, but that has completely disappeared. And I don't really care about Neighbor Guy or his wife. Um, <laughs> by extension, I also don't really care. I-, I don't think they've done a great job with the uh, with the stuff with Bill and his son and his attempt to foster a relationship there. It just it 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 feels like he should be wising up faster than he. It seems like he inevitably will. Um, although I I also understand that they're toying with ideas of masculinity, et cetera, et cetera. But it just doesn't feel subtle or particularly well developed at all. Um, mostly, what I enjoyed this week was Lester getting really sweaty. That was about it. <laughs> I liked this episode. Um, I liked most of what we got. Um. Some of the dialogue that they saddled poor Lizzie Kaplan with was not great. Um, Specifically in the scenes with mom? Yeah. It's just... Yeah. I mean, they they both, the actors both do their best to sell it, but it's just dialogue we've heard many, many times before, which doesn't mean it's not, you know, how these characters would feel, but it's, I usually hope for more creativity 
from yeah. from the writers here. Uh, but I did think a lot of this worked. I liked what we got with the couple that they brought in, even if it was um, maybe a bit expected. Uh, I thought I thought it worked well, I, and I also really liked the way I liked the writing for the for the female client. Because, and the way that both Ginny and Bill completely dismiss her in a way that feels very correct to the period, but is clearly, you know, now we look at that and, you know, her behavior and don't think she's ridiculous at all. You can absolutely, I think the actress gives a really strong performance, um, but they see her, you know, expressing emotion about, or frustration about her husband's treatment of, of her and disrespect for their uh, for their commitment that they're supposed to be having to each other and this fear that she's, there's a problem with her. And um, they just say that she's crazy. Uh, so I thought that was very appropriate to the time. Um, and Well, t- to to be totally fair, she did expose herself semi-randomly. Um, yeah, but that doesn't I... make her crazy. No, I, 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 no, I, I, I agree. But I think that's, it has more to do with what, with what she does than what she says. Yeah. I like when she starts, when she starts crying after or after orgasming and, you know, being told it's not your fault, clearly you're capable of this. Um, and it's, it seems like Bill's response is to be like, I guess, uh, Ginny's right. This, she is crazy. It's like, there's a lot more going on there. And, and the, the word crazy is a very loaded word. So, um, I, I really enjoyed that aspect to this episode. Yeah, I don't, and I did. I did like the climactic scene with with that couple of him of the husband explaining the trying to explain seeing her on screen versus meeting her in life and having these uh, these ridiculous expectations uh, for her and for what they were going to be. Um, that 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 scene was affecting the rest of it. I I was uh, was second tier masters masters of sex for me. Uh, is the stuff with 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 Bill Junior going anywhere for you? Um. I liked I liked it on the whole. Um, I also like I liked the notion of him finally like seeing a value to football and then having that become a point of conflict. So right. I like when you know their his parents are being terrible and the coach calls them on it. Um, I like that Bill extending warmth to this other kid whose parents aren't around. It's theoretically the right thing to do that's what that kid needs but it's all how there's not a way to do that without making his son feel like shit so i like the challenge that there's not you know i enjoy what we enjoy on shows when they present a challenge or or a conflict and there is not a good answer um so i thought that that could lead to some interesting places and it's easy to say well kid get over this bully beating you up because he's got a lot of stuff going on in his own life that doesn't mean anything to a kid. That's not, you know, th- that doesn't take away the immediacy of the the pain inflicted on that kid and the trauma of that. Um, so I think I think that there's interesting stuff there. So I, yeah, I guess I, I guess I'm just more on board with this one, even if it's not, if it's even if it's not peak masters of sex. Not even close. No. Yeah. Uh, let's move on to our next episode, which is Mr. Robot White Rose, and we had. Uh, fantastic uh, brief guest appearance from B.D. Wong as White Rose. Holy crap. Yeah, that was so great. Fantastic. Loved it. And and uh, we also got, of course, a series of reveals 
in this episode. Did the did those twists work for you? Well, I mean, we actually don't know uh, everything, obviously. Like, we see pictures of him and, and Mr. Robot. Uh, my my working theory is that he is not his father, uh, that he's, like, his uncle or his stepfather or something. Because if his dad's not dead, that messes up too much other stuff, um, at least for me. Like, mm-hmm. if it is his dad and he's dead and he's a ghost or whatever like that, that's going to take a, that's going to undo a lot of other stuff that I think would just be too messy. Um, so I think there's something, there's a slightly less obvious answer to that. It, um, I think the dad's in his head and he is the dad. Uh, so when we then, see the, the, the guy who's, when they're with that meeting in the limo, that's, you know, that's our lead right there. That's Rami Malik. And that explains why we've been following this other character this whole time, because our lead has been meeting with him in secret. We just haven't seen it. I'm hoping that's not it either. Um, okay. I would prefer if Mr. Robot was a real guy, just not his dad, uh, and has who been just lying looks to him. just like him. If he, I guess if the dad has an identical brother who doesn't age, that could be the case. Well, no, I, we're we're seeing pictures of of him with with uh, with Elliot, but we don't. That doesn't make him his dad. He could be some other relative. I suppose it's just heavily implied. I, I'm going to call some bullshit on that. They'd have to do a lot to pull, like, if that's what the show goes with, they're going to have to do a lot of heavy lifting to get me to not call bullshit on that, those videos being anyone other than his dad. He could be his stepfather. Still. The point remains. Anyway. We'll see. I mean, it's, that's still up in the air. The other reveal I thought was great, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, with, uh. Carly Chaykin. With Carly Chaykin's character, and uh, I, I mean, I wasn't even thinking about it, but I was reading comments with people talking about past scenes they'd had, and then remembering, yeah, that does make a lot more sense. Like, the way that she has this, like, this, this like, physical closeness with him, which, at first, you're just, it just seems like traits of an annoying human. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and if once you know that they're siblings, okay, that makes a lot more sense. Why, uh, of course, she knows where he lives. You know, yes. that kind of stuff. Yeah, lots of things like that. That's that's a that's a that's a solid twist right there. Um, I also loved her, the actress's uh, Carly Chicken's performance in the reveal and her yes. reaction to "You forgot me again." So that just just the word "again" and her delivery of it paints this whole picture of uh, of years of struggle between you know with mental illness with that character that we haven't seen. Yes. Uh, so that was great. Um, other stuff to like the, I have to say, I have to give credit when I see something, when I see a show do something I've never seen before. And I have to say, uh, like deliberate forest water breaking is a thing I have not seen before. Fair enough. Uh, so, you know, credit where it's due. Yeah. Hopefully the kid's okay though. And then gets taken away from the parents that shouldn't have it. (laughs) Right. Well, we never know. Uh, I mean, yeah, like, obviously they should not be parents. On yeah. the other hand, uh, you know, kids are resilient. Maybe it'll react against them and be totally cool. Uh, <laughs> unlikely. <laughs> um, what else happened in this episode? Um, you know, all the stuff with Wellick and him just freaking out, uh, was good. Um, but yeah, it's so much of this is just, I, I have to wait till next week to see how they handle this. Cause it's, it's a real make or break moment. Yeah. Uh, but the but the fact that they pulled off the twist with Carly Jakin, I think is a good sign. Yeah. I I agree. And like 
again, I just keep every time I watch an episode of Mr. Robot, um, I just enjoy its specific visual aesthetic, its approach to its characters. You know, I, I enjoy these these elements that are separating it from the rest of you know TV right now, um, and even just this year. It's it's really it's so fun to have such a distinct show. Yeah, and it's and it's just it's taking such ridiculous chances. Yeah, like almost every week. Confidently. And so, and like, yeah, confidently. So even if it confidently walks into a glass panel and just like breaks its nose, I'm still going to be, I'm still going to admire what it's doing. Absolutely. Well, talking about taking chances and confidence, uh, Hannibal's not a show lacking in confidence. How did uh, And the Beast from the Sea work for you? Uh, I'll, I'll try to keep this brief. Uh, obviously, the set piece was incredible. Um, most of the rest of the episode, I didn't find all that interesting to be honest um there were some although there were some specific moments which i later found out were lifted from the books like specific bits of dialogue that i noticed while i was watching it this does not feel like hannibal dialogue um specifically i'm just about done with you crazy sons of bitches uh which i mean god bless him hugh dancy did his best to sell that but it still did not feel like it was out of the hannibal universe did, was that just me no, that was not just you. That that line really stood out to me as well. Uh, I haven't seen other people comment on it online. I didn't have space in it for in my review for it, but um, that line really didn't. It was very odd, like you say. Yeah, and it apparently it's straight from Thomas Harris, so that's why. Um, and a couple others were as well this week. Apparently, uh, what does interest me is the fact that, um. I guess I won't discuss this too much, but the the show's relationship with the source material is now somewhat different uh, thanks to this episode. So uh, that makes the remaining episodes much more interesting. So I, on its own, it wasn't that fascinating an episode outside of the set piece, but um, but I'm very, very curious to see what happens now. Yeah, the like you said, the central set piece was the highlight of the episode for me. Uh, I the, my my review basically just breaks that down and looks at that because it was so fabulous. Um, what I think is, and I've t talked about this uh, elsewhere, what I think is so fascinating about Hannibal is how every review I read of every episode from every different writer takes a different approach and focuses in on a different element. And so for some people, they were very focused on the werewolf imagery this week. For some people, uh, they were really interested in duality or in Faust or in other, other themes of the episode. But um, I, I really liked what we got with Reba and Dollar Hyde. I thought that scene was fantastic. And um, I continue to be very interested in how they're going to end the season. But uh, but people can hear my thoughts about this on a, another long <laughs> edition of This Is Our Design, which should be up in your feed soon if it's not already. And this week we got to speak with Aaron Abrams, who of course plays Brian Zeller on the show about this episode. And uh, last week we got to talk with Don Mancini, the author of the episode, or one of the writers of the episode, I should say. And it was, uh, yeah, it was very cool to talk with Mr. Abrams this week and People can read my review at Sound on Sight, read my score analysis, or listen to me talk about it there. There's plenty of me talking about this episode <laughs> online. So let's move on yes. to our next episode, which is the finale for Humans, episode eight. And how is this? How, what did you think of this finale? And how do you think the season as a whole kind of comes together? Is was this was this worth the eight week investment? Uh, I don't know because this finale was such a mess. I don't know if it was just me, but. There was so much mess in this episode. Uh, just so many, like, arbitrary shifts in character motivation. 
so many contrivances in terms of like characters are held for ransom and then let go and then and the, the, I think the main issue frankly is that a show like this should be full of tension and suspense and should be like quite exciting to watch and there was not a drop of tension to be had out of this episode and that's a really bad sign I, I thought there was some tension um when we know that there's the one synth has been uh, basically made a sleeper, I thought that worked. Uh, I didn't really expect anyone to die or anything, but I thought there was some tension there that was effective. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely agree. This is not the most compelling of the the new shows I've seen this year. It's pretty far down the list. I would I would say Th- there are moments that I like. There's performances that I that I like, and certainly certain actors I'll be keeping an eye out for in other projects. Um, but yeah, it's it's hard. For, this is going to be one that I think at the end of the year I'm going to have a hard time remembering, unless somebody mentions it to me, and then I'll say, oh yeah, that's right, I liked I liked humans, but it's not one that has a certain element that sticks out in my memory or makes me want to come back to it and revisit it. Well, and it just feels like there there aren't that many sort of, quote, hard sci-fi shows going on right now. And it would be really great for them to be, like, we really want to root for them. And there's something about the subject matter of the show and its ambition in terms of setting up a world that makes it feel like it should be great. Like, mm-hmm. it should be, it should be must-see TV. And it's just okay. Yeah, I would and say it, it's solid. It's good, but yeah, but it just it you can't escape the feeling that it should be like ten times better than it is, or even just for me, regardless of the show, I want it to be. It does a it does a solid job with the show it wants to be, um, but the show that it wants to be is not a show that I feel like I need to tell people they have to watch before they watch any of the other various new things this year. Yeah. And I, even just things like like its approach to secrets, and uh, like even just breaking down to two things that, that specifically come to mind, but the um, like the the Laura character and her deep dark horrible secret, which was like a perfectly like a like a pretty like obviously yeah, definitely dark, but not not like something that it it was such a, a strange thing for a character like that to feel like she had to hide from everyone. And and to create this fissure between her and her husband for like almost the entire season, uh, fair like a pretty underwhelming reveal there that just didn't feel particularly warranted. Uh, but especially the motivations of the uh, of the of the the lady robot cop uh, were just so shifty. Like as pointed out elsewhere, like like she spent her whole life living among humans and even like forming friendships and stuff. And now she's just like, we cannot live with the humans. Like, oh, uh, okay. Yeah. They were more invested in the reveal of her as a synth than in making that reveal fit with what we'd already seen. Yes. Uh... And and the fallout that they knew they wanted from that character to make sense with what we'd already seen. Yeah. And specific things were just dropped that apparently um, the, the U.S. versions of the episodes are edited down from the U.K. versions. Uh, so they're they're like significantly shorter. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, the whole subplot with uh with Man Cop and his uh and his uh, ex girlfriend or girlfriend and her synth. Apparently that that subplot did have more and like a proper ending and stuff that we just didn't see. That's always so, frustrating. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, that w- I don't know if that would have made it significantly better, but I did notice the editing was quite strange. Like, music cues just getting cut off, especially, was quite noticeable to me. I don't know if you picked up on that. Uh, but yeah, anyway, it, 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 again, it just felt like there was a lot of promise that never really, that wasn't really, uh, uh, built up on. It has been renewed already by, uh, by AMC and Channel 4, so maybe, uh, maybe a switch up in, in the, in the behind the scenes, uh, or even, or just, a just a general tightening of the ship. I could see it becoming really good, but it's not there yet. Yeah, and it sounds like I liked it more than you did overall. Um, I, I enjoyed my time with it, and I enjoyed it while I was watching it. But it's that difference between the show that you're going to that's going to stick with you, that you're going to continue to think about and continue to talk about, and then just a show you put on to enjoy while you're folding laundry or taking care of other things. Yeah. So I was hoping it would transition from laundry folding to can't not watch, and unfortunately for me, at least, didn't make that transition this season. Yeah. And I think they could probably stand to use like five hundred percent more self-aware humor next season because yes. they didn't they didn't do that very often, but it always worked when it mm-hmm. did. They did it like twice, so I feel like they need they could they could do that a little bit less self-seriousness. I think would go a long way. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Uh, well, what about the last episode of this week in TV? Uh, Rectifies finale, the source. This, I mean, talk about must-watch TV. This felt like a series finale in a big way, and it was a beautiful series finale. Uh, it was real good. Uh, it was about on par with the rest of the season. Um, I was, I was think I was a little bit worried, frankly, that it, in the scenes with the sheriff, that we were gonna get um, another like a a, a a twist that they that they were going to throw in something to further complicate matters, which they didn't really, uh, which was fine by me because this is not a show that really needs like a like a constantly shifting mythology. Um, I mean, the only real thing right now that is still an issue is that we still don't know how Hannah Dean died. Um, like we know the circumstances more or less surrounding her rape, but not what happened afterwards. And based on what we've seen Daniel do, it's certainly not out of the question mm-hmm. at all that he killed her uh, or that he didn't kill her. Uh, so I'll be, I'll be curious to see if that's a question they ever explicitly solve uh in future seasons or future season uh by the way <laughs> the fact that like two hundred thousand people watch rectify uh or something like that and yet it still gets renewed is so wonderful um i, I wish that would that was the case with everything uh sadly it isn't but uh it's it's nice that it's it's found like a niche where it can continue to survive despite having some of the most minuscule ratings like humanly possible for like a for, for a show that so many people can access in the states uh but anyway uh yeah lots to like in this finale uh everyone gets a gets a moment or two uh and there's and there was a nice there was an unusual and welcome amount of joy present which was great that beach scene that we get with daniel is just absolutely gorgeous when like and and talk about with humans we said they could use more humor you know that how how fun and sweet and funny is you know when he's throwing the ball back and forth with the kid it's just adorable and the kind of moment that this show absolutely cares about and is very happy to give time to that most shows wouldn't most shows would have daniel come and stand at the beach and be like oh is it it's just so beautiful and like that would be all we would get but this show really yeah. lives in that scene, lives in that moment, and in Daniel's relationship with his mother, and 
and with nature. I have to say my other favorite moment, that that's a great moment, but I think my other favorite was getting that dream sequence with Daniel and Tani. Gorgeous. And, which, which is a great, great sequence, but while it's happening, I'm like, this might be a little much, but then we find out it's Tani's dream and not Daniel's, and I'm like, that is perfect. Because <laughs> yeah. there's no establishing shot to figure that out mm-hmm. uh, at first, and it, also the timing of it was weird for it to be Daniel's dream. Uh, or Daniel's hallucination or whatever. And then finding out that it's Tani was just like, wow, loved it. <laughs> well, because in again, like I said, this very much feels like a series finale. This feels like they went, we can't believe we got a third season. Uh, season two ends with a cliffhanger to some extent. Season three, they're like, everybody's, we know where everybody's at. Everybody gets one more scene together, uh, except for uh, even... Does Daniel remind me? Danny, Dan, Daniel, and Teddy—they don't get a scene here. I don't think there's any uh, Daniel and Ted or Teddy interaction. Yeah, but and that's out of respect because he doesn't—he's trying to respect their space. Um, yeah. But they're like, okay, we we can't end the show without one more Tawny and Daniel scene. But they can't. Neither one of them would go see the other one. So how yeah. can we do that? And so instead, they give us this, which is such and. and it really seeing those two actors together again, Aiden Young and uh, Adelaide Clemens, really highlights just how strong a connection they have, such fantastic chemistry, and how great those two characters are together. And they've not been able to have them together, you know, for you know, be, by being true to the characters and the story, the, the, those characters have needed to be apart this season. And so, giving us that scene, that one last interaction between the two of them. Uh, really is very powerful, and I'm so glad that they included it. And fortunately, this isn't the series finale. There's more next year, so who knows what's going to happen next. But if it had ended here, I would have been very happy with it. Yeah, the continued prosperity of Rectify is just one of those weird things that we can be grateful for, uh, even though it makes no fiscal sense at yeah. all. Like I, or I, I can't imagine why Sundance keeps renewing it. I don't really get it, but I'm glad that they're doing it. It's almost like... Like it's like it's uh, like an email list they keep forgetting to unsubscribe from. Mm-hmm. Well, like, oh, we just auto renewed rectify. Ah, why not? Mm-hmm. You enjoy it. Uh, the the last thing I'll mention here, besides you know, again, fantastic performances from the entire cast, and I'm I'm very interesting developments with the um, with with the case and with the with the sheriff and the DA and like all of that. I I like that they made some time for that. I like that they made time for the um the former DA and the lawyer to get one more uh scene, you know, to bring that character back and have him still be part of the world. I like that, mm-hmm. you know, what we get with the lawyer and with uh and with um, Amantha. I like that they touch in on all these different things, but I particularly like that last sequence we get with Teddy and Amantha and and then Jared, where you can see what kind of a family they were before Daniel. You get a glimpse of that, and we haven't gotten that really all mm-hmm. all series. And so to have you know to have them together at the end, I thought was was a very nice touch. Yeah, kind of returning to a pre-Daniel status quo. We or we can imagine, although it's it seems like Amantha never really liked Teddy, mm-hmm. and it also seems like that was kind of arbitrary. Because when they're actually just hanging out, at least now, they seem like they could be totally cool. Yeah. Well, uh, and with it's just almost, a little work. And it's almost like you can see her realizing that. Like, she was a jerk to, you know, to this guy, cause he, basically because he wasn't Daniel. And she wanted her brother back. Um, and so there's a level of maturity 
that maybe she's like, oh, I've been a, I've been a dick to yeah. my brother. Uh, Which, to be fair, Teddy was kind of a dick, too. Yeah, oh, totally, definitely. But, you know, for a character who just, you know, goes around saying brother, brother all the time, or mother and sister, <laughs> like, the way that they refer to each other. Yeah. She's known Teddy longer. She spent more time with Teddy, yeah. but she doesn't call Teddy brother. Um, and so it's, I mean, again, maybe I'm just reading into this, but it seems to me like with her, you know, returning the figurine, which was such a prominent, you know, source of conflict, um, subtextual conflict between the characters earlier on, um, there's, it's sort of like an olive branch to, I should probably care a little bit about my relationship with this brother too. Yeah. Uh, also, we didn't mention this earlier, but it was amusing to see Luke Kirby turn up as an attorney on Show Me a Hero yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I guess the real last thing I'll mention here, uh, because we're talking about Rectify, is that if you go to Sundance TV, gentle listeners, fans of Rectify, go to Sundance TV. They have what they're calling the Rectify Film Festival, short film festival, which is a, a page that has a series of short films that are directed by and starring various people involved with Rectify. So there's some uh, short films directed by Ray McKinnon and by Aiden Young. Um, Abigail Spencer has one. There's one starring James Smith Cameron and other just other people involved with Rectify. So that's all together at Sundance TV. And apparently you can, or I should say Sundance.tv. And apparently you can watch it at there, at their, their website. They're, they're trying to become a, a destination for, for, you know, watching short films, at least to some extent. Uh, at their website so go check it out because i think that's pretty cool that they're supporting these cast members these artists in other ways too also in the off season while while you're craving more rectify um this isn't this isn't more rectify but everyone who is like hey j smith camera is great why don't i see her in more things for the love of god go find and rent the director's cut of margaret by kenneth lonergan uh starring her and well principally starring anna paquin uh shot i think a little bit pre true blood um she's amazing in it j smith cameron is amazing in it lots of other people are amazing in it it's an amazing movie one of the best of the zeros uh, absolutely watch that ish asap <laughs> okay well what wins your week in genre and drama i will give it to rectify bless you rectify uh although i am very excited for wherever hannibal's going yes and i go close on with that rectify we love you we're so we're gonna miss you while you're gone I'm so excited it's coming back. Um, but this week it goes to Rectify. And again, I assume I really like this episode of Hannibal. I, you know, pretty much love this episode of Hannibal. But I'm pretty sure we'll be back to the Hannibal Award goes to in the next couple of weeks. But uh, certainly this week, let's give Rectify its due. So a few show notes yeah. here at the end of the show. You can find a post up for this episode at soundonsite.org where you can leave us a comment and let us know what you're thinking, uh, what your thoughts are on this week's TV. You can find us on Facebook where you can like us to follow the goings on at Soundonsite TV and uh, start up a conversation there. You can find us on iTunes where you have an M4A chaptered feed and an MP3 unchaptered feed. You can also, of course, email us, theteleverse at gmail.com. And then we're both up on Twitter. I am at theteleverse. And Simon, you are? At Sucker Howell. And instead uh, of a question of the week this week, I'm soliciting, you know, emails, uh, tweets, uh, voicemails, any of that stuff uh, for <laughs> favorite Simon moments, favorite uh, you know shows that that you wouldn't have watched 
without Simon poking you, because I know there are several that I would not have got, not the least of which are, of course, the Mickey Watchathons, but there are many others that, you know, Broad City, I wouldn't have watched if you hadn't kept poking me about it. Adventure Time, if you hadn't kept poking me about it. There's there's a number of, of my favorite shows right that I'm watching right now because of you, Simon. So I want to hear from our listeners, their favorite Simon Televerse moments and their favorite discoveries uh, with a little urging from you. So I'm stealing the question of the week. You did. I was going to ask what you, I mean, you don't have to answer this. I was going to ask based on the ridiculous Deadwood rumors. Oh, my um, God. <laughs> which I love you, Garrett Dillahunt, but stop poking that fucking bear. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I was going to ask, what show do you need to stay dead forever, even if it's a show you love, uh, specifically a show you love? So maybe think about that also, okay. just for fun. Okay, uh, fair enough. I, I, I really I really want Deadwood to stay dead. Oh, okay, well, I'm leaving that one alone, because I could see it going either way, leaving that one alone. Um, All right. Now we'll take a break, and we'll come back with Ricky D of Sound On Sight to talk about the Wonder Years. So we'll be right back after this. There's no pretty way to put this. I grew up in the suburbs. I guess most people think of the suburbs as a place with all the disadvantages of the city and none of the advantages of the country, and vice versa. But in a way, those really were the wonder years for us there in the suburbs. It was kind of a golden age for kids. There, that's me. Kevin Arnold, 1968. The summer before junior high school. There we go. And I don't mind saying I was a pretty fair little athlete. <laughs> it was a pretty hard pass. Well, uh, yeah, I, I think it had sort of a reverse spin on it. Come on, Kevin. Stop gabbing with your girlfriend. She's not my girlfriend. This was true. Winnie Cooper was not my girlfriend. When we were very little, we used to go down to Harper's Woods and catch fireflies, but we really hadn't hung out at all together since we were about nine. What would you do if I sang out of tune? Would you stand up and walk out on me? Let me your ears and I'll sing you a song. I will try not to sing out of key. Oh, baby, how? Back at the Televerse, this is Kate Kalsik, joined once more by the fabulous Simon Howell. And this week on the DVD shelf, it's Simon's last DVD shelf, so of course we had to bring back uh, our, our editor-in-chief, co-founder of Sound On Sight with Simon, and genera- general uh, friend of the show, Mr. Ricky D. Ricky, welcome back. Thank you so much for bringing me on, specifically for this episode, not just because it's Simon's last episode, but because it's... I think my favorite TV show of all time. And I think I'm going to actually have tears in my eyes talking about this. I'm already getting choked up 
know, right? Thinking about it. Well, because the show we're doing this week is The Wonder Years, and we've had this pegged uh, for Ricky to do when he came on for literally years. A year. Yes, at least a year. Because you you mentioned it before we even did the DVD review uh, at Sound on Sight. Actually, Kate, when you started the podcast, I told you I wanted to talk about The Wonder Years. That was four years ago. Yeah. But it we're was finally doing it. <laughs> Yeah, because it was never released. And then they released it, and I, I received the box set at Christmas. And so we've been trying to do this for almost a year now. Yeah. And speaking of, at, here at the top, for those who do have $350 of disposable income and don't re- receive a review copy, uh, do you recommend the box set of The Wonder Years? Hell yes. Man, if you have to go out and panhandle or, I don't know, sell your DVD box set of Friends or some crappy TV show. Oh, Gauntlet Throne. Oh, snap, do it. Like The box set is so worth it. Like, honestly, it's one of the best box sets ever assembled for a TV show. The amount of bonus material, I think there's like three or four bonus discs. It comes in this miniature locker, and it has three booklets with specific descriptions of each and every single episode, the songs they played, uh, notes from the writers, the cast, the producers, the filmmakers. It's well worth your $300 if you have $300. Well, and that's why it's so expensive. You specifically you know, already mentioned the reason it's so expensive is because of the music, because this is a show that aired before anybody thought about DVDs or before them VHSs, and therefore they didn't get the rights to the amazing soundtrack to this film when they were making it. So trying to then go back and renegotiate for those rights for the DVD uh, is difficult. And that that specifically is the reason that this is so expensive. Now, when you say amazing soundtrack, you mean to say the greatest soundtrack ever assembled for any TV show and or film, period. Okay. See, I can't I can't state that because some of us don't have $350. So I was watching the Netflix version which as I understand it does not have uh, the right music. It, here's the thing, like uh, perusing the soundtrack uh, and uh, like I know what Ricky's saying when he says it's the greatest soundtrack assembled for a TV show. I I think it's the most uh, in terms of like assembling the most iconic songs. That's almost certainly true because there's probably literally hundreds over the course of the show and like they're just doling out you know god only knows and like a million other like pop culture touchstones that you would never do now because they're all just so prohibitively expensive in terms of rights is it the most inventive the most like crate digging the most like um you know original set of songs i don't think so but now here's the thing okay so but at the time, like this show takes place at a specific place in time in the U.S., right. 1968 to the mid-70s. And I think that the thing about the music is that they specifically choose the perfect song for each and every single scene. The music helps tell the story. The music at times helps relate the emotions and what the characters are thinking and feeling but can't actually say, specifically Kevin, played by Fred Savage. I think... It is honestly the greatest soundtrack ever assembled, not just because it's the greatest hits of like the late 60s and early 70s, but I think the music is specifically perfectly picked to match the scene and the emotions that the characters are feeling at that very specific moment of time. 
should we maybe try to explain the Wonder Years to anyone who hasn't seen it or just know what it is, which is you know, probably a decent segment of the audience? We should, and the fact that that is probably a decent segment of the audience is another thing that we're going to talk about here. Now, The Wonder Years is a show that I had heard about, obviously, you know, for at least the past four years, but I was familiar with the premise. I, of course, knew Fred Savage from The Princess Bride, one of my favorite movies of all time, where he plays the little kid at the beginning. So, you know, I already knew what a cherubic young Fred Savage looked like, and I had heard, you know, everybody talks about falling in love with Winnie Cooper when they watch this show, but I I had never seen any of it because some of us didn't have cable <laughs> growing up, so when Nick at Night was, you know, airing it uh, on a loop over, through the early 90s, I, I didn't have a chance to watch it. Uh, this is a show that I'm surprised is not mentioned more in discussions of greatest dramedies of all time. I don't know if you'd call it the greatest comedy of all time, I don't know if you'd call it the greatest drama, but it blends both in a really affecting way and precursors many of our the sort of heartwarming comedy approach that we have now but um but yeah i i didn't really know much about it before this dvd shelf so so ricky would you take it away what is what is the wonder years it's something special i think to simplify it it would best be pegged as a coming of age sitcom because at at the time this is this show was released in the 80s so this show was well ahead of its time now, the thing is, it has this long-form episodic format, right? So it's not like your typical sitcom where it has standalone episodes and it's just about like a reoccurring joke. Like each and every single episode follows the story that happened in the previous episode. But it basically follows this kid named Kevin Arnold, played by Fred Savage, and him growing up from age 12 to 17, beginning of high school till the end of high school when he goes to college. And it's about him, his mom, his sister, his brother Wayne, and this girl that he's absolutely head over heels in love with, Winnie Cooper, and his best friend Paul. That's pretty much what the show's about. But I think it's an important milestone in TV history. Like, it served for inspiration of so many shows that followed, and it really showed what television could and would eventually be. Yeah, it's it's one of those shows where when you watch it, it's it's serialized in the in the in the way that the things that happen and you know to this kid later affect what's going on with this kid. It's not um, it's not like tune in next week for another daring you know for the the resolution of this exciting cliffhanger. It's not that kind of serialized, but it certainly it tells the story of this kid's life. And so when when things happen. They, for the most part, do resonate later on in the season or in, you know, especially in relation to the the relationships between these characters and the friendships between these characters. And even when it does become more, um, it's like, well, let, let's have let's have Kevin try out a new sport that he's not done before. Like there, there are some, you know, familiar kind of beats that start recurring more frequently as the show gets into its later seasons. But it still keeps at its core this like understanding of the characters and the way that the way that if you are grow up in the suburbs and are, you know, middle class, upper middle class, this, you know, the way that's going to feel very familiar. Well, you know, what's interesting is I watched this show when I was younger and I watched it again this year. I actually just finished watching it last night. So I've been pacing myself, right? It's been almost a year of me watching season after season. And the thing is, I have a completely different view of the show, the characters and the stories, because now I am older and I do not have kids, but I do know what it's like to at least work with kids and take care of kids because I work in elementary school and I'm older and I'm an adult. I'm not a kid anymore. And it's just weird to have to see things in the show and to see specific uh, 
aspects of people's personalities and why, for example, Jack is the way Jack is now that I am older as opposed to being younger. And what I love about this show is I think it's timeless. I think this is the kind of show that you can watch in 50 years from now and it will still hold up. You know, it, and even like in terms of like the aesthetic and the look and the quality, like even the quality of the DVDs, like it has that um, square shape, right? It's not like panoramic view, like a widescreen view, because this is like, again, filmed in the 80s. But it works. It works specifically because it's a show about the 60s. And what's interesting about the show also is it's told through narration via Daniel Stern, who plays the older Kevin. So it's technically from Kevin's point of view when he's older because he's narrating the story, much like if anyone's seen Stand By Me, right? So it's interesting because you get to see Kevin's point of view as a kid because you're watching him react to everything that's happening around him. But then you hear his voice of him as an adult when he's older. I've never seen that in any TV show, period. I've seen it in movies like Stand By Me, but never in a TV show. That happening like a bunch like right now isn't the Goldbergs doing that but it just always feels when I see other shows do that it feels like they're trying really hard to be the Wonder Years and for the most part failing because they need to figure out how to be themselves at this point I feel like the Goldbergs has figured out how to be itself but there there have been a lot of shows that have featured narration from the characters later on even if they're not kids okay well but this show came out in the 80s so once again yeah. it's ahead of its time yeah. no one had done it at that point not to mention i mean how i met your mother was also completely based on this premise yeah. right true yes yeah. okay but yeah. I, I would hate to compare the goldbergs to himself in their years well and also only one of those things stuck the landings between him you and this obviously <clears throat> yeah. yeah anyway simon what's your relationship with the wonder years i never saw it growing up uh, I knew it for by stature and by reputation, but not for any other reason. I knew Fred Savage mostly as kid from Princess Bride and director of many, many, many great sitcom episodes. Most of them uh, Always Sunny. I'm sure we'll get there. Uh, definitely one of the most interesting careers in in TV history. He's about to be the star of a sitcom again, uh, thanks to The Grinder, which hopefully will be good. It has a good pedigree. We'll see. Um, so yeah, not too many people can, can really rival that sort of TV comedy career on, on both sides of the camera. Um, I loved this. I thought it was uh, so great and I was not expecting to love it, frankly. (laughs) This is too like warm and fuzzy for you. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. Uh, no, it's, the thing is, it is absolutely warm and fuzzy, uh, but it is, it is so in a way that is, uh, realistic. And I, I think what is best about it is how, um, inarticulate the writing is. <laughs> this is that's a, that sounds like a weird compliment, but like I love how like the, the narration, the balance between the narration and the dialogue is perfect because Daniel Stern talking as the older Kevin, uh, he he elucidates what's what's going on. He presents a version of events. It's almost as though um, Daniel Stern as Kevin, he's 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 reading you the audio book of his life, but he can't see the screen. So he doesn't have a, a realistic version of what really happened. Well, uh, and that's so he, the thing. I don't think it is necessarily 100% realistic because people remember things inaccurate. Well, no, what I mean is like the things that he says don't connect to what we're seeing on the screen. Like, I think what we're seeing is what happened. And then his version of it tends to be quite inflated. Totally. Uh, and that and obviously the gap between those things is used for comic effect sometimes and uh, sort of, you know, dramatic, ironic counterpoint other times, usually comic. Uh, but I like how, you know, the older Kevin is 
is very lucid and perceptive, and the younger Kevin is just so realistically stunted and just often like doesn't have the right words or has no words for the difficult circumstances he finds himself in, especially with Winnie. Uh, and the other people around him aren't any better. You know, it's mostly like a lot of kids trying to deal with each other, not really knowing how to relate to each other because they're young and, well, kind of dumb because that's how kids are. Um, <laughs> and uh, and it may still manages to generate a lot of pathos out of that. And that's hard to do. Like, I, I think a, a lot of times with kids on TV and in film, too, the real... Um, the real unfortunate aspect is they tend to be overwritten and they tend to be, um, they tend to be too articulate for their age. And a lot of this has to do with the fact that they tend to cast older, uh, whereas these kids are age appropriate. So it makes sense that they're, you know, stumbling, stumbling and bumbling through their lives. And I don't know that, that it sounds like a weird thing to highlight, but that to me was like the major thing that major thing, despite how major thing, despite how uh, dated aspects of it are, um, that's the thing that I think keeps it timeless is, is the, um, the, the, the sheer like lack of elucidation from the main characters. But before we move away from the narration, I just have to jump in and say, okay, first of all, the narration is simple, but it's also poetic. Like I love just reading the quotes. Like there's a specific Tumblr page, for example, that's, that, that's made to honor the wonder years. And all they do basically is copy and paste the quotes from the tv show but again going back to the narration what i mean about the two different points of view is that i think it's in the very first season it might be like the seventh episode there is an episode six episodes in the first sorry season the second season there's an episode or it could be the first season but anyways there's an episode in which kevin tries out for the baseball team right and i don't know if you guys have seen this episode but it ends and basically, you know, he gets the home run and he, he, he ends up like being drafted by the team and his, his dad is proud of him, et cetera, et cetera. But then in the narration, we find out that's not exactly what happened. And so he himself says, like he admits that my narration isn't necessarily 100% truth. In other words, he's not the, a reliable narrator. Like, so it's a blend of how he remembers things and how it actually happens. I actually disagree with that. I think. For me, he's a reliable narrator, and what we're seeing is unreliable, especially because I, one of the things I really like discovering about this show, and that means it makes it feel ahead of its time, is its absolute comfort using fantasy, brief fantasy sequences. For example, when uh, Kevin goes to give Winnie the snow globe for Christmas and as a Christmas present, and he goes to the door, and, and he imagines that she comes out in this you know, soft lighting and uh, a halo around her looking fabulous as, as fabulous as a 12 year old can look. Um, <laughs> and, you know, they share a moment uh, and then it cuts back and it's like their aunt or their neighbor or something opens the right. door. But the thing is, Kevin's no different when he's older, because I'm telling you, there's specific episodes. And that's the one episode that, that, that comes to mind right now where he himself admits that he doesn't really remember how it happened, but it doesn't remember it. It didn't happen that the way we see it. Mm hmm. You know what I mean? So it's like yeah. he hasn't technically changed. Like, as a kid, he was like a dreamer and he would fantasize. And he's still the same to some degree as an adult. Yeah, well, and of course, that ties in with the fact that he becomes a writer. And I think that works really well. And the last thing, I, for me at least, that I would point to in the narration, aside from the fact that Daniel Stern is fantastic in his delivery of the narration, just reading lines of, you know, of written-out dialogue from the narration can make me choke up because I can hear the, the mm -hmm. delivery from Stern. But what that really solves in a beautiful way is the struggle between 
casting age-appropriate actors and casting actors that you have more confidence in their range and their ability to play different stuff. And um, watching this show, just this really highlights for me, similarly to Freaks and Geeks, if you're going to do a show about middle schoolers or high schoolers, especially early high schoolers, cast age-appropriate because they change physically so much over even just four years, let alone the six years of this show, you get to watch them grow up. You get to see them change in front of your eyes and you feel such a stronger connection to them. And if you're worried they're not good enough actors, then you can write around that. You can work around that. There's definitely some of that that happens on this show. But what having this narration and having it executed so well allows them to do is to show Kevin, like in the pilot, Kevin bumbling as he approaches Winnie and she's crying about her brother and I'm getting all choked up just thinking about it. And he's not sure he's uncertain. He doesn't really know what he should do, but the narration, instead of relying on a 12 year old to give you all of that, which, Hey, maybe you can find a 12 year old who can give you all that. But most of the time you're not going to, they can have used just a little bit of narration to kind of give you a window into what everything that Kevin is thinking and allow the audience to just the, the performance and the visual to show you what an outsider would see and, and let the, the, the narration help you, especially when they're younger, the characters are younger, uh-huh. get a window into exactly what they're thinking. I, I think another thing it does really beautifully is, uh, and this is again, another thing that, uh, this is something that Kate and I talk about all the time is shows about teenagers and shows about kids and the way they depict adults and something this show does. I don't know if it's better than any other show, uh, but certainly up there is it manages to have a really nice balance between, um, you know, showing Kevin's parents as he views them, like as he experiences being their kid versus having them as three dimensional humans. And yeah. he, he managed and partially because it's because there are entire episodes devoted to his relationship with his parents uh, and with specific individual parents or with his sister, uh, which is very smart. Like it's, it's so smart that it's not all him at school or all him and Winnie or all him and Paul. Uh, like there are specific episodes devoted to that, which is helpful. Um, but there's just, just such a nice balance between perception and reality. And like, Maybe he has a little bit more perspective than is realistic for a kid to have, but it's still way more interesting than just constant, you know, oh, my parents just got a pain in the ass. Well, you know, I I really want to talk about Fred Savage, but before we talk about Fred Savage, I have to talk about what I think is the show's secret weapon, and it's actor Dan Loria, who plays Jack mm-hmm. Arnold, his dad. Because I think if I were to make a list of, say, the 20 best episodes of the Wonder Years, I would say there's at least five episodes that are essential. Five episodes that have to be on that list that revolve around Jack and his relationship, not just with Kevin, but his relationship with with his daughter, with his wife, etc., etc. He, first of all, is an amazing actor. His performance is pitch perfect. But I love how... It really, really captures the dynamic between Kevin and Jack and their relationship and their struggles and Kevin's struggle growing up and finding ways to understand his dad and relate to his dad and rejecting his dad and accepting his dad. I mean, do you know what the second last shot of the episode of this of the series is? And not just the second last shot of the series, but the last shot of two characters. It's a shot of Kevin and not Winnie Cooper. It's a shot of Kevin and Jack. It Mm -hmm. ends on Kevin and Jack. In fact, 
when the show ends, I don't know if I should spoil it for anyone. Let's not do that. No. Okay. So one of the big revelations when the show ends is what happens to each and every single person after, you know, they move on with their life, specifically what happens with Jack. But I always felt watching the show, especially when I was a kid, because I always had like a rocky relationship with my own dad. I always just, for some reason, just sort of related to Kevin and his like frustrations and, and, and his problems with his dad. But I just think that the character of Jack Arnold might be the best character in this show. It's not even Kevin. Kevin's actually a jerk. Like, <laughs> like I'm not joking. He's a real jerk. Just think about every single time he was mean to either his best friend Paul and or a girl and or anyone for like he, he's a jerk there's a tumblr account dedicated to kevin arnold the jerk okay <laughs> so it's interesting that's, that the main character of the show is actually the least likable but we like him because fred savage just happens to be the ace in the hole right he's but, a but he's not actor. like but he's not like a ferris bueller where he's like a little sociopath like he's not evil He's, he's just, just normal self-centered. Yeah, he's like a he's like a normal growing up level of I don't know how to deal with this. I live in my head. I'm going to be I'm going to behave like a bit of a dick here and usually he tries to fix it, which is more than you can say for most people. The thing age. about Kevin is he's actually cool, but he's not part of the cool clique in high school, right? So when he's surrounded by his friends, he's actually the cool guy. But what's interesting about the characters is they change, like really, really change. So when you compare Paul Pfeiffer from season one to Paul Pfeiffer of season three, four, five, and six, Paul Pfeiffer is the one who loses his virginity in high school. Paul Pfeiffer is the one who actually settles in a relationship with a girl who actually likes him instead of a Winnie Cooper type <laughs> who keeps on breaking up with him. Paul Cooper is the one who ends up joining the basketball team and he goes on to college and becomes a lawyer and gets high grades on his SATs and so on and so forth. Kevin doesn't really get anything he wants. He can't even get Winnie Cooper. Like, they constantly break up. And Winnie Cooper is too much trouble, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay, before we get into all of that, I'm going to rewind us a little bit and return to Jack, because I had a few things I wanted to say about him. One of the lovely things about watching this show, because I just started at the beginning, and I watched all through season one, part of the way through season two, and then went, I could watch all of this, I need to start skipping around because if I wait for there to be a dud, clearly it's not going to happen right away. Um, the third episode my, is my is my father's office, and it's this fantastic, fantastic look at Jack and why he is the way he is, and Kevin's interest in his father and his understanding and his continually uh, adjusting relationship with his father as he starts to understand him. You know, each time they get a moment like that over the course of the series, he starts to understand him more and more as a person and not as this figure of his father. But that's, first of all, this show starts incredibly strong. It has a fantastic pilot. But that's the third episode of the series. They knew what they wanted to do right away. They have a very, very clear picture. So the pilot sets the world. Swingers kind of like establishes the Kevin and Winnie relationship, what it's going to be at least for a while after the events of the pilot. And then we're right to my father's office and really looking at Kevin's parents as people and not as, you know, the what was of the peanuts. You know, that's the third best episode I think of the entire series. And strangely (laughs) enough, it's incredible. It's incredible. And strangely enough, it's the hardest episode they had to write. They said that they had no trouble in scripting 
any one of the episodes except for the third episode of season one. They had so much trouble in getting it right. I don't know why, but they felt it was so important to establish and humanize the dad because they didn't want to create a show that was just about a bunch of teenagers. They really felt they needed to zone in on the whole entire family and flesh out these characters. And that's what I mean about the dad being the secret weapon. Episode three, it's all about the dad. He goes to his dad's office. And then the thing about that specific episode is I think we can all relate to it to some degree and having a dad who's, you know, the head of the house and he he's paying the bills and so on and so forth. And then seeing him at work and he realized he's just like a lackey, you know, he's getting yelled at by his boss in front of his son. And it gives you a whole different point of view of what the dad really is. And then you start to understand why he comes home and he's grumpy and he's tired and so on and so forth. Totally agree, Kate. That is the third best episode of the, um, the entire series. I still think the pilot is the best episode. I think the smartest decision in the pilot is that they could have had, in theory, Winnie's brother die at any point over the course of the show. But I think having him uh, die like over the course or having them find out about his death over the course of the pilot was so smart in terms of emphasizing like, yes, this is from, um, you know, this is from Kevin's perspective, but this is not only going to be about Kevin and this is not going to be a story about a kid who only who only thinks about himself. Like, this is going to be a story about a group of people, even if it is, like, through the lens of one character. And I think that was, a, that was a great way to announce that. Well, I think it also sets the time and place. And it provides an instigating incident for why the story starts there. So that that loss really... It's, it starts a new chapter in his life. Even if it's still a very innocent time for him comparatively, that is the start of his change in his growing up yeah and not just the start but it it features two of the most important moments of his life as an adolescent going into uh just just right before he becomes a teenager because his idol dies in the vietnam war which is like a big shock to him because it's the first person he's ever known that's actually died and then he has his first kiss. And I think that Kevin and Winnie's first kiss in Harper's Woods is still one of the greatest TV moments of all time. I get goosebumps just thinking about it. It's just so powerful, so sweet, and yet so depressing and sad. The pilot really is a very strong. It's a fantastic episode. I, I would have to watch more before I could give a definitive answer if I think it's the best episode they ever did. Oh, darn. But um, but it definitely is one of those all-time great pilots. Simon, any any thoughts on the pilot that we haven't already? You know, anything else to say about the pilot? No, it's very assured. It's very clear that they know the show they want to do. Also, we haven't mentioned, I think, the most important thing about this show so far, which is that even it, it, it's a half hour, and we have described it as a sitcom, uh, which I don't think is quite. I don't think is right. It's definitely. I feel like the, the term dramedy. Uh, places it closer but i could so easily have seen this as an hour long uh however i think the fact that it is a half hour is uh is a huge part of, of what makes it work as well i think an hour would be too long and i think one of the great things about the scripting of the show is not just the dialogue or the narration it's the it's the way they find visual metaphors and to parallel different storylines of these characters like for example there's one episode called death and taxes i think it's called and um so it takes like kevin's storyline and then his mom's storyline and finds ways to bounce back and forth and juxtapose 
what the two characters are going through and using what's happening in one person's life and what one person's saying to emphasize what this person's feeling and so on and so forth. So it, it's also, by the way, got fantastic editing, something else that no one talks about. It's a um, solid, solid show when it comes to editing. The editing is so tight because they do have to get it condensed into actually 22 minutes, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. Um, I just want to quickly mention just between me and you and Kirk and Paul and Carla and Becky, my second mm-hmm. favorite episode of the entire series. And the reason why is not just because it's so incredibly funny and features so many characters and introduces Becky, but it's because it made me realize how Winnie Cooper got the role or the actress, I should say. Danica McKellar. Right. Her sister was supposed to get the role of Winnie Cooper and she was auditioning for a supporting role and or not auditioning. I can't remember what the story is, but it just so happened that she had darker hair like she's a brunette and her sister had lighter hair she's more like on the blonde side and for whatever reason the producer really wanted like a brunette and he just felt that she had the look and i guess he thought that she would have more chemistry with fred savage and so she ended up getting the role instead of her sister and her sister was a professional actress she was not even an actress she didn't want to be an actress and it worked because clearly there's chemistry between fred savage and her but what they decided to do is they decided to still write a role for her sister. And they included her sister in the TV show as Becky. And of all the girls that Kevin met, and he met a lot of girls in his lifetime, at least during high school, the the, the life that we see of him, I think Becky is by far my favorite character. <laughs> well, yeah, it was one of those situations where they saw a bajillion people and they had it down to the two sisters and they really liked them both and they had a heart this horrible time choosing so that's why they they made sure that they cast the uh, the sister as well because they they wanted to involve her in the show because they really liked her too and becky is just such a fun character i didn't see enough episodes i've heard from people that it gets a little old by the end of the series but i i did not see enough episodes to, to understand the instigating incident in their relationship. But I love there's just this girl who just hates Kevin and understands that he is a jerk and a schmuck and he clearly did something and he has no idea what it is because he's a 12 year old boy who missed something. He missed a memo. Um, And so I just, I love the way that comes up, at least in the episodes that I saw. She doesn't last very long, but I think the thing about Becky is she's the very first character in her show that really points out that Kevin is a jerk. And that's what I love about her. And she's just feisty and funny and great. And she actually ends up liking Kevin and then he breaks her heart. And that's why she ends up hating him. Yeah. I mean, Winnie calls him out on being a jerk, but she's she matches him for jerkiness pretty well. Uh, so or, or like or at least I think she does. Uh, based on my recollection, so I think that's one of the reasons they're a good pairing. You got yes, Kevin can be a jerk and Winnie can be a jerk, but guys, they're adorable and. After watching this, because I had seen a couple clips here and there, and people said, oh, every, everybody who watches The Wonder Years, except for Ricky, apparently, falls in love with Winnie Cooper. And I like, didn't really get it. And then I watched, start from the beginning, and watched a few episodes. was like, by episode three, if not, you know, five, you know, if, if not even sooner, um, I was like, okay, I totally get it, because she is just, you just want to put her in your pocket and just give her <laughs> a hug and protect her. And, like, travel her back in time to before her brother dies. Well, the thing about Winnie is she's so fragile and so sweet and so innocent. And even when she tries to be sort of like the rebel, like, there's one specific episode where she tries to, like, 
do bad things and steal a baseball cap and whatnot. She just can't. You can't not help but like her. And she does make mistakes because she's human, but she's not like a jerk in the sense that like she's mean spirited or whatnot. It's just that she's a jerk in the, in the, in the sense that man, Kevin really went out of his way to do everything for her. Like, I mean, I don't think we don't know what happens to her later in life, but I seriously doubt that if this was a real person, she would ever meet anyone who loves her as much as Kevin Arnold. And that's my point of view of her. So, um, that's not always enough though. Yeah. True. He's also super controlling. Yes. Yes, he is. He's got some stuff to work out. He loves her so much that he just needs to control everything. He needs to quit his job and head to a resort where she's working so he can get a job at the exact same resort and snoop and spy on her. Totally. Yeah. But but there is that one episode where she gets into the car accident, which is heartbreaking. In fact, that's the one and only time they say, I love you. Did you know that? Yes, I did notice that. Oh, that's they 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 mouth it. Yeah, they mouth it. Yeah. yeah. Well, we've gone over time, and we've talked about three characters. So <laughs> we're gonna do a quick speed round here. I want everyone to say um, favorite guest character, favorite recurring character we haven't talked about. Um, oh, it's gonna be hard. I've got so many picks for both of those, and I guess biggest surprise or favorite moment. Um, in in watching the show. Can I just start with favorite guest character? Go for Mr. it. Mr. Collins. Mr. Collins was his math teacher. It's one of the most devastating episodes of the entire series because he dies. And I think that's by far one of the best episodes. And just, he, the, I don't know who the actor is. He's a character actor. He just did such a fantastic job in that role. That's Stephen Gilborn as Mr. Collins. So that's, I think, the best guest appearance uh i i really enjoyed uh ben stein showing up in the ben stein role of the boring teacher literally the only good use for ben stein is to play boring teachers it's what he was put on this earth to do the rest of the things he does are terrible and uh so what seeing him show up was great i was i felt bad that i missed the guest appearance by carla gigino what uh yeah there's lil lil carla gigino shows up Nice. And uh, Giovanni Ribisi, little Giovanni Ribisi shows up near the end. Well, uh, he's just... a reoccurring role, though. Oh, d- is he? I only I only caught him in the uh, in the two part finale. Oh, he's in the whole entire final season. Oh, there you go. Anyway, uh, I'm sure there's a, a whole bunch more that I didn't notice. I have to say, uh, Death and Taxes might might be. It, it might. I don't know if it's my favorite, but I love how small a story it is. And like how how it's really about like very small moments involving Kevin's parents and the way that and his perception of it, and I think it's just so so sharp and so smart, uh, in a way that so many other shows would never bother to be. One of the guest performances actually really stood out to me was uh, John Corbett shows up as Karen's uh, boyfriend, <laughs> and it's this like obnoxious character who is is there to be obnoxious because. He's he's with Karen, but he also is with someone else because uh, because, you know, it's the, it's the late 60s. It's, you know, free love and, and everything. And if we get to watch him say lovers a disconcerting number of times, certainly from Kevin's perspective. Um, and what I love is and he's, he comes over for dinner and he's talking. They're talking about the war and uh, it's talking about like the the geopolitical like machine and grinding up and all this stuff while the 
their vet father, Jack, uh, Korean war vet, uh, I think, I assume, uh, is um, just like slowly going insane. And they make this character so obnoxious, particularly because you're in Kevin's point of view. And then they cap the scene by showing he's been drafted. And I'm choking up thinking about it because it just they give this respect to this character at the after they've spent the episode laughing at him saying, "Okay, you think you understand where this guy is coming from. But then this is a position he's been put into. And what is he supposed to do? And the the show again, I spent this whole segment like so close to, to losing it. And apparently this is the moment that'll do it for me. Cause it's such an emotional show, but the respect they pay to that character after laughing at him for the whole earlier part of the episode, they just, they're so willing to make him human. And it's a scene, the turn of it is something that the episode handles really well. And the performance particularly does as well. So apparently I'm going to go blow my nose now while y'all talk about your next picks. But that was one that really stood out to me. Well, because we're running long on time, I'm just going to quickly say worst cameo appearance was Juliet Lewis. Skip that episode. Also, Dustin Diamond, one of my favorite cameos, the guy from Saved by the Bells. And my favorite reoccurring guest appearance, of course, is Becky Slater, which I've already mentioned. Right. I think Juliet Lewis is always the worst guest appearance. Yeah. Controversial. I'm not. Uh, Sorry. I'm not coming down either side on that one. I'm going to you know, stick on the fence for there. Uh, favorite recurring character, Simon. Uh, I think those. I think I've I've been I've been covered on on that one. Except I'll, I I will add though that I, I I never found Paul quite as interesting as I think the show wanted me to. Oh, I like Paul a lot. Anyways, um, I, one of the fun surprises for me, and so I guess this will be my last thing, my surprise and my recurring character is um Robert Picardo as the gym teacher was delightful because I always see him cast as the intellectual. So to see him as like the jock gym teacher throughout the first couple seasons uh, was fantastic and such a lovely surprise for me. So um, we've, we've gone super long. So we're going to, I guess we'll have to cut it off here. Any final thoughts on the Wonder Years besides the fact that it's beautiful and poignant and one of the best shows that nobody talks about? Um, what, what sticks with you besides all of that? I just personally think that there is no TV show that I've ever watched in which I have such an emotional attachment to. Like, watching the show feels like I'm actually watching these people grow up. It feels like I know these people. It feels like they are my friends and family. And honestly, like, I tear up several times while watching. Like, I mean, there's specific episodes where I find myself almost in tears. Like, it gets dusty in the room. And I I just think that it just goes to show that I I really do believe that Everyone has, like, an interesting life. Like, I don't care who you are, you have an interesting life. And if you really think about it, you can write an amazing TV show or film based on the things that have happened in your life that each and every single person can relate to. Because we can relate to what we see in the show, these characters, and the things they go through, like the things that happen to, to these people. I think that's why it hits the right chord and we have such an emotional attachment to it. Like, yeah, of course, the cast is great and the writing's great. But it's just because it's about everyday life and things we all experience and can relate to. And I think if you haven't watched The Wonder Years, do yourself a favor and watch it. Because I honestly think it's one of the greatest shows ever made. And I know at the beginning of the podcast, I simplified it by calling it a sitcom. That's just because how that, that is how they labeled it back in the 80s. But this show was way ahead of its time. And I think a lot of shows that people love nowadays 
uh, owe a lot to the Wonder Years because the Wonder Years inspired and influenced so many people moving forward in the medium of television. I think it's one of the most important shows ever made. Watch it if you haven't seen it. It is essential viewing. You will love it. Absolutely agree. Uh, I'll just end by saying if you don't cry during the finale, you're probably a disgusting savage. If you don't cry during the pilot, if you if you don't cry during like a solid, I want to say at least the ones I watched and I, I did a pretty random sampling. If you don't cry during at least, I'm going to say a quarter of the episodes or at least get choked up, you're a savage. I feel confident with a disgusting that. savage, a disgusting savage. The last thing that I will say is co-sign everything you said Ricky you put it beautifully but this is a fantastic fantastic show that I'm glad I'm very glad to have seen this is one of those like top five shows I'm glad to have discovered via and like finally caught up with via the DVD shelf the the last thing I'll say is um kind of ties into what you were saying Ricky about there being everyone having an interesting story um this my my brother-in-law is from Lima Peru and apparently the Wonder Years is huge there or at least uh was when you know with his his group of friends or his generation so he he's a city kid from peru and uh when he moved to and everybody knows the wonder years everybody loves winnie cooper uh when he moved to the suburbs of chicago with my you know with my sister um he explained to his friends like what's it like what's it like where you're at he's like "Mm, it's kevin arnold's neighborhood uh so Yes, this is a show set in the 60s about, uh, a, a you know, a 12-year-old boy, white boy, middle class in, in the suburbs of America. But it also speaks to, uh, you know, is an insanely relatable show to a group, at least my brother-in-law and his friends, uh, in City Kids from Peru. So clearly this is a show that transcends boundaries and uh, speaks to something universal. It's a beautiful, beautiful show. And if you haven't seen it, give yourself the gift of a weekend binge of, of The Wonder Years. You will not regret it. Well, thank you so much, Ricky, for coming on the podcast. Uh, where can our listeners find you and your work online? At the moment, you can find us over at soundonsite.org. There will be some big changes in the upcoming week, changes. which I'm sort of excited <laughs> about, but I'm also sort of like really scared. But anyhow, um, and then on Twitter, like us on Facebook, we can use your support and I can talk about the show for an hour, but I won't. So I just want once again, thank you both for not only inviting me on to talk about the one of the years, but just for producing what I think is the best TV podcast, period. Oh, thank you. We appreciate it. And we appreciate you picking the Wonder Years. So now, because now I've seen it and I wouldn't have. So thank you, Ricky. Um, and thank you to our listeners for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Televerse. Mm-hmm.